Welcome to the one within all to another episode of Interverse. I'm your host, Chance, fresh off a great Thanksgiving holiday. And I hope you listeners out there can say the same. And you're enjoying the shift into Sagittarian season. This moment in time is primed and perfect for a deep dive I've been patiently waiting to take into one of the most enigmatic figures in religio stellar myth, the serpent bearing savior in the stars known as Ophiuchus. Perhaps it's past due that we peruse the catalog of symbolism laid up in this liminal individual because, interestingly enough, Interverse itself was born under this most auspicious asterism way back in 2015. I was a different guy back then, and the podcast journey itself is where I found my fascination with the cosmodrama of the constellations. But what I did know was that for me, starting this podcast was a crucial component on my course to self-realization, and I hoped to bring a lot of other people along with me. In hindsight, it's rather remarkable to realize that perhaps beyond any other legendary Logos archetype, Ophiuchus's part in the grand pattern is as the portal to the recovery of our higher selves, the shower or the shower of the way to establish consciousness in the gap between stimulus and response and thus find true feed freedom unfettered from the conditioning of trauma. And of course, what's so striking about this serpentine singularity of salvation is that in many ways, in most episodes, this theme is what Interverse is all about. So joining us for this Ophiolatrous explication is returning guest David Warner Matheson, author of at least eight excellent books on astrotheology and the ancient worldwide system of star myth allegory. In my study on the subject, I've yet to find work as comprehensive and laser focused as David's, and I recommend you search for his previous Interverse episodes if you want more. In his newest book, Myth and Trauma, <clears throat> Higher Self, Ancient Wisdom and Their Enemies, I'm pretty sure that's the newest book. David dedicates a whole chapter to Ophiuchus where he lays out all the confirmations you'll need to see just how important this constellation is as a representative in the sky for a huge array of characters such as, but not limited to Buddha, Jesus, Krishna, Solomon, Moses, Athena, Odysseus, and even occasionally Loki. 
Matheson is the master of star myth. And if you check out his website linked in the show notes, you can pick up a book and benefit from his many long labors of love on the subject. But that is not all, folks. To the Interverse faithful, he needs no introduction. This time around, we're also joined by Mario Garza of Symbolic Studies, one of the most well-rounded mythologists and authentically curious investigators of the technology of sacred symbols. I've been wanting to put these two guys in a room together for a long time. And finally, the stars have aligned. So now that we're all good and fired up, let's open door number 13 and see what mind prizes await us as we begin our Ophiuchen explorations with David Warner Matheson and Mario Garza. Welcome to Interverse Dudes and thanks for coming on. Wow, thanks. Great introduction. Great to meet you, Mario. Great to be back, Chance. Likewise. Yeah, that was a great intro, man. Thanks for having us. Uh, yeah, I'm super excited about this. I really want to recapture that moment from before we hit record where, <laughs> you know, what's the meme about you, David? <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying it's Ophiuchus, but it's Ophiuchus. In other words, Ophiuchus is so central that you um, people kind of get tired of me pointing out, well, this is Ophiuchus, because in this ancient system that you alluded to in the in that tremendous run-up. Ophiuchus is this pivotal figure, this doorway figure, liminal figure, great word, liminal, which means what uh, everybody out there in uh, in grammar land, the threshold, the threshold of a door. So liminal space is like the threshold space or the in-between interstitial space. These are like words that university (laughs) professors like to spout off, but Ophiuchus is this pivotal, central, but hidden, mysterious, unseen, and in many ways forgotten or left out or suppressed or buried figure that is the key to everything in many ways. Very interesting. Yeah. Would you say he's a mercurial figure? Ooh, so that is a really excellent question, um, which is my way of saying I'm stalling for time thinking, I don't know. No. Um, <laughs> so I've actually written a book on the Greek myths a long time ago, 2016, called Star Myths of the World, Volume 2, Greek Mythology, where I argue that Mercury is more likely Aquarius. That said, Aquarius and Ophiuchus have some interesting similarities to where Ophiuchian figures and Aquarian figures will sometimes overlap. You mentioned Jesus. I was going to save Jesus for a later chance, but Jesus is definitely an Ophiuchus figure. I can show that. I'll show a little bit on some slides, but Jesus says, when you see the sign of the son of man coming in the heavens, He'll separate the sheep from the goats, which Aquarius does. So Aquarius is the sign. There's only one sign that's really a single male human individual. That would be Aquarius, unless you count Ophiuchus, which Jesus is definitely Ophiuchus. But Jesus is also Aquarius, the sign of the son of man who separates the sheep. Obviously, Aries is on one side of Aquarius and Capricorn, the goat, is on the other side. So In some ways, when Jesus turns water into wine, he's probably Aquarius pouring out some water that turns into wine. And and also 
the 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 coin in the mouth of the fish story when he says to Peter, "Hey, go catch a fish and pull a coin out." There's a fish right underneath Aquarius called this southern fifth fish, Piscus astrinus, with Fomalhaut, the important star Fomalhaut. I've seen on your um, Instagram, Mario, how you talk about the royal stars and Fomalhaut which in Arabic means mouth of the fish. That's this really bright star right at the mouth of the southern fish right below Aquarius, which Peter's actually Aquarius as well. I, I talk about that too. So um, this is all me coming around to your question. I can see some evidence that Mercury in this running pose, and Aquarius has this running pose in the constellations. If you outline Aquarius the way H.A. Ray does, is an Aquarian. There's an Aquarian connection to Hermes or Mercury, but also, I would also agree with you that there are some Ophiuchus connections. So let's. You're, you asked the question. I'll I'll throw it back to you. Like, where are you going, or what what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, sure. So. My angle with Ophiuchus, um, you know, I haven't done as deep of a dive as yourself on Ophiuchus, um, but the material that I've read over the years, this idea of Ophiuchus being a central sign, there's even some zodiac wheels where, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while, but they will put Ophiuchus literally in the center of a wheel. It's a modern wheel. It's not an ancient wheel or anything like that, but this is alluding to this central, um, you know, location. And what I've read over the years was that Ophiuchus essentially is kind of alluding to an older sort of location in the sky, or it's alluding to an older sort of um, deity, if you will. And when I think of the hub of a wheel, you know, I think of the axle of a wheel and I think of the northern sky. And Ophiuchus is further north, if I'm not mistaken, right? On the ecliptic there. And so all of the things that I've come across over the last couple of years, um, and some of the material that I'm going to reference tonight, I wish I could relocate some of these entries, but it said something along the lines of um, Ophiuchus kind of being a bend in a river, if you will, kind of pointing you in another direction. And it's a more northern sort of direction. And kind of like yourself, I have a thing where I uh, really like to decode and unpack the northern sky, the circumpolar constellations, Ursa Major, Minor. And so uh, I think a lot of the symbolism that I've decoded with the northern sky, I almost feel like Ophiuchus is kind of nudging you in that direction to kind of acknowledge um, what's happening up there and what it's saying to me with it being the 13th sign, if that's the case, right? And I'm open to all of it, by the way, but it's breaking you out of this solar paradigm, right? The 12 being more so a solar number, um, the 12 disciples, but Christ being the 13th. And so the 13th kind of being a completion of this 12, uh, the 13th card being death and the hanged man too. There's a lot of symbolism with the 12th card of the major arcana that links it to solar symbolism. So it's kind of a tradition in older decks uh, with the hanged man card that there's actually 12 branches coming off of the two posts that the hangman hangs from. But there's a 13th branch up top. And what I've read is that symbolically, um, the solar tree has 12 branches, right? Which makes a lot of sense. So this 13 kind of breaking you out of the sort of paradigm or matrix 
of the 12 sign system into this other thing. And what I tend to see is that uh, it seems like, you know, as ancient as these constellations are, they're kind of a newer sort of God, if you will. But in the Northern sky, it seems like these are more ancient gods. These are more ancient constellations, kind of hearkening back to a more of a stellar tradition or what I refer to as like a, a polar tradition or Northern tradition. And so I see Ophiuchus also, um, you know, people saying that Ophiuchus is ruled by Mercury. If it's the 13th sign, I don't know if you agree with that or how, you know, much of a consensus that is, but I thought that was very, very intriguing because I always think of Mercury and the Caduceus. And I know Ophiuchus relates to Asclepius, right? And so the staff, sure. the staff symbolism yeah. in general with the serpent wrapped around it, you know, I see a lot of Northern sort of stuff going on there. So that's just kind of like a little brief overview of how I tend to see things. Yeah. Thanks for laying that out. So you said a lot of really intriguing stuff there. Let's maybe start at the last thing that's freshest in my mind about the staff. So Ophiuchus figures, and we'll see it, I'm going to show very frequently in myth have a staff or a rod. So if you think of Moses, his staff turns into what when he throws it on the ground as one of his proofs, a serpent. Moses is for sure an Ophiuchus figure. I didn't actually put that in the slide lineup for today, but we could talk about it if you want to. But staffs and also spears, which if you think of a, you know, in the sky, there's just stars. So we're drawing the lines using our imagination. But Ophiuchus suggests either one spear or sometimes even two spears. For instance, in the Iliad, Hector, who's the strongest fighter on the side of the Trojans, he's kind of Achilles versus Hector is the real duo, the, the two strongest is Achilles versus Hector. And Hector is associated with Ophiuchus for sure. He has two spears in some, there's specific passages in book five of the Iliad where he has two spears and one of the spears has a hoop on the top of it, which is very well, I, I don't want to go too far without bringing up the stars of Ophiuchus so that people who maybe haven't dived into all this symbology as much as you and I and Chance have can envision Ophiuchus. I'll pull it up in just a sec. But um, so spears, staffs, but as you said, a spear or a staff that turns into a snake or has a snake running up it. Asclepius for sure is Ophiuchus. Asclepius is this Greek ancient god of medicine who was so successful at healing that eventually Zeus said, he's healing all the, nobody's dying. This is going to get out of control. I have to destroy Asclepius with a thunderbolt. And that's interesting because of what I'll show you in just a second. But he has the kind of original staff with a serpent going up. But in his other hand, he carries these little honeyed cakes little small round cakes, which I believe has to do with the other side of Ophiuchus, the serpent's head side of Ophiuchus. We'll pull it up in a sec. But there's in India, little cakes that Ganesh, the the elephant headed god, has little cakes and Ganesh is associated with Ophiuchus. Um, so Maybe the manna from heaven in the Moses story could be that. Absolutely. Moses 
and the crossing of the Red Sea. So the other thing, Chance, in your beautiful intro, you made a not so Freudian slip where you said the shower of the myths, Ophiuchus, but also the shower. There is a shower right next to Ophiuchus. It's called the Milky Way. Like when Zeus comes down as a shower to um, the mother of Perseus, Danae, who's been imprisoned in a box under the earth by Zeus, um, and by her father, Zeus is like, well, that can't stop me. He <laughs> descends in the form of actually a shower of gold. But it's I, I mentioned that just because Chance you're, or Mario, you're talking about going up to the northern. All I think it's important to point out that around the world, the myths are based on this same system, including in the Maya. And I'll show you some South American imagery. And including in Australia, I've found evidence in some of the Australian um, sacred stories of the indigenous Australian Aboriginal cultures where their myths are used. There's one where there's a fisherman pursuing a spear, uh, trying to spear a fish whose eye is shining up from the deep, just like we were talking about Aquarius and um, Piscus Astrinus is the name of the southern fish in Latin. But So what I'm saying is this is around the world in cultures around the world, even in the Southern Hemisphere. But the Milky Way, which intersects the Zodiac, seems to form another path. And going along the Milky Way towards Perseus seems to have been a symbol of ascension, of of getting in touch and connecting with the spiritual realm. So I'll just finish off now. this kind of little riff off of what you said, because all those so many things that you said we could unpack for the whole hour, but this idea of uh, arrangement with a hub in the center, Ophiuchus is like the pivot that connects the Zodiac to the spiritual realm. And it doesn't necessarily have to be Northern, but it's, it is North of the Milky way. We'll see or of the Zodiac. We'll see it in a second. But there's arrangements around the world of this hub. Scott Onstott, have either of you guys heard of Scott Onstott? He made a brilliant video called Secrets in Plain Sight and and has done a lot of other esoteric work. Um, Chance, you were nodding your head. He alerted me to a book or put me onto a book a couple of years ago called 12 Tribe Nations by John Michelle. John Michelle famously wrote, view over Atlantis and new view over Atlantis in the sixties about ley lines and kind of got the ley line movement um, rejuvenated in the sixties. It had actually started much earlier in the twenties, people discovering ley lines in England. Of course, they're much more ancient than that. They're they're called dragon lines in China and um, they're, you know, very ancient knowledge. But John Michelle later wrote a book called 12 tribe nations, where he shows an arrangement in nations around the world of 12 around a 13th. For instance, in the Bible, the 12 houses or 12 children of Israel are around. They're arranged north, south, east, and west, but there's a 13th in the center. And that's where the connection with the divine is. That's where the priests are. And that's not just a pattern in the Bible. He finds it in Madagascar. He finds it in Iceland. He finds it in Ireland. He finds it in Wales. He finds it in the Inca. And it's an arrangement of 12 
with a 13th in the center that is connected to the divine. And so, Ophiuchus, this, I didn't know about that book until Scott Onstott turned me on to it, but this goes along with what I found in the myths of the world, where Ophiuchus is the hidden or suppressed connection to the divine that we all actually have access to, but we forget. And that's why it's kind of excluded. And that's what I think is going on with the suppression of Ophiuchus. And so it, I think, ties in with all the things that you're saying, Mario, if, if that yeah, no, absolutely. It uh, I see a lot of sacred center symbolism with Ophiuchus, and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, when you look at any star as an example, if it's a five pointed star, there's mm-hmm. that sixth point in the middle. If it's a seven pointed star, there's that eighth point in the middle. And as you just mentioned, with the twelve, there's that thirteenth point in the middle. That's the point of ascension. So that would be like the hub of a wheel or like an axle, right? And um, with Ophiuchus, actually, it's 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 interesting that you brought up uh, John Michel because. Because one of my favorite books of his um, is called At the Center of the World, and it's exploring polar and northern symbolism um, with a lot of European tribes and how they had a central sort of location for their village, for their people. And oftentimes it was indicated with a tree or a mound or a standing stone or something along these lines. And he was saying that a lot of these people, what they were trying to do is emulate the sky, the heavens, uh, in particular, the northern sky. So my understanding is this was pre-Zodiac or at least pre-perhaps solar worship, you know, and so they looked in the heavens and they saw that all of the stars were revolving around one central star, the pole star. And there's a debate to be had, in my opinion, whether or not the pole star shifts. I'm meeting more and more people who think that the pole star maybe has always been stationary, um, which I think is kind of intriguing. But that uh, they had this sort of concentric ringed sort of idea where they kind of uh, they formulated their civilization or their culture in kind of a ring land sort of way. And that there was a sacred center right there in the middle. Um, and I see Ophiuchus kind of alluding to the center in a number of ways. I think the galaxy thing is fascinating. The Milky Way galaxy where it's located, right? The center of the galaxy. Um, and also it's right next to a centaur center. I see a lot of center symbolism with the centaur, right? And it's just right there. Um, and there's a relationship there, right? Obviously. Um, so I, I can, I can kind of see the, the symbolic center symbolism coming about it being expressed from Ophiuchus in a few different ways, but I'm on board with a lot of things you're saying here. This is a super fascinating sign. I, I, I don't think I've ever talked publicly about Ophiuchus. So this <laughs> is my first time getting into it. I want to add, you know, so my perspective on the things you guys are laying out that might help sort of bring it all together is I look at the entire sky as the psyche of the divine or God's consciousness made visible or the, the collective consciousness made visible. The all, in a sense. So when we ask the question, you know, is Ophiuchus a mercurial figure or is he Mercury? Or as you show in your books, David, how maybe sometimes a particular figure is like Loki, for example, is Sagittarius. Maybe another time he actually does show up as Ophiuchus and maybe another time he's Boates. The way I comprehend that is whatever the protagonist of a particular myth is, he's like the the point of consciousness of the collective, you know, what it is that's currently in our attention. 
And then all the other characters and the backdrop and symbolism and the locations he travels through are all these other archetypal aspects of the un- that are unconscious until he comes into awareness of them. And so when we look at all of the tableau of and cast of characters that are in the constellations, I think each of them represents a fragment of the psyche of the Pleroma. And that's why one character, one protagonist can sometimes embody one thing and sometime another. It's been said that the ecliptic, each of the zodiac signs are the a role that the sun plays on its journey. And it's like an actor that changes characters at, you know, in different scenes. And I like to think of it that way. And then when we consider Ophiuchus as this point where the horizontal band of the ecliptic and that endless circle that the sun travels in is now intersecting you know, and nearly 90 degree perpendicular with the Milky Way, which seems to be not just a way uh, as but a way as in like one that you travel traveling north. The riddle is to find the middle that point where now there's stillness. Everything revolves around the the throne, which is an anagram for north, <laughs> the pole star. The Ophiuchus sits right at the point of that intersection and is like the doorway or Jesus says, I am the door. Jesus says, I am the way showing you the way to get out of the cycle of what you might consider conditioning or prog- a program in a sense, because what is the ecliptic? What is the zodiac? It shows you what your traits and tendencies are based on where, when you were born, where you were born, and how that affected you. And in a way, that's actually very similar to trauma. I'm not saying that your zodiac chart and your and your sign and all that is something that you know you should feel traumatized by, but it operates in a way very similar to trauma. It's a type of conditioning that. And unless you bring your free will to bear on your actions and get into that gap, that liminal space between stimulus and response, and then make a choice rather than react, then even your zodiac uh, sign and your constant, all the ways that your, your chart operates are like a type of almost like mind controller conditioning. And so the sun is in this endless loop, repeating this same cycle, going through the ecliptic forever and ever. And that's the earthly realm. That's the mortal realm. And what I think is being shown by Ophiuchus is this way to look up, to elevate yourself, get above that circle, that cycle, so that instead of being caught in it, you're now above it and you're in the stillness, the the north, the center point, looking down and thus able to decide where do I want to be on this wheel right now, instead of caught in the progress and the, you know, the endless loop, (laughs) the time loop. That's my, that's my best understanding of a lot of that understanding was highly aided by the really good chapter on Ophiuchus in myth and trauma, David's book. Yeah. Well, thanks for that uh, little book wreck and i'm really glad that you found value in their chance and what i was going to say is what you're saying is fascinating because i have published one book just since then but it's fresh off the presses so you might not know about it called invoking the ancient gods in you which just came out and goes further down that line that I was going in myth and trauma, but talks about how, as you said, Chance, 
the Zodiac is all our different ingredients and different recipes call for more, you know, paprika than others. And some, some people have more cumin and some people have more, I don't know, salt or pepper or whatever. We, we have a different, every one of us has a different mix of ingredients and they all have something beneficial to give us. And those are all, like you said, in the pleroma, but also pleroma out there in the, you know, the, the visible slash invisible universe, but also in here. So all those characters in the myths are different parts of who we are. And some of us have more of this part than that part. Some of us have more Loki than others. Some of us may have more Aries than others, or some of us may have more Venus than others or Aphrodite or, you know, different mixes. But we all have access to this hidden self, suppressed self that is the connection with the divine that actually is where we get inspiration that can't be explained. And since writing Myth and Trauma, which is about how trauma separates us from self and some of these cutting edge trauma psychologists like Dr. Gabor Mate that I mentioned a lot in that book or Dr. Peter Levine talk about how trauma causes separation from self. And we can go into all the reasons why that happens. Uh, since writing that, I discovered another therapist that Dr. Gabor Mate talks about sometimes whose name is Dr. Richard Schwartz. And he talks about the internal family that's going on inside of people. And he founded a paradigm called internal family systems. And it's the same thing that the myths are showing. We have a family, like the family of the gods, you've got it going on in here. I actually did an episode earlier this year with a practitioner of internal family systems. It makes so much, it unlocks so much um, clarity and the ancient myths are talking about this. Now, when you talk about, you know, tribes in Northern Europe or whatever, this is so ancient. And I do want to pull up some slides because I can show this is present in the earliest, dyn- the, like the first dynasty artwork of dynastic Egypt. So this is pre-dynastic Egypt. This is present in the Vedas of India. So this is pre-Vedic India, the most ancient civilizations we know of are using this system and I can demonstrate that. So this argues that it comes from something really early, probably before some kind of cataclysm and the most ancient civilizations we know of ancient China, ancient India, the Australian Aboriginal indigenous people of Australia have been on this continent. People, you know, believe for 30,000, 40,000 years, obviously it's, in the Southern hemisphere. And you mentioned the centaur, Mario, just to, so we should pull up some visuals so people can see it, but the Sagittarius is a centaur and I can show why Sagittarius is a centaur using the stars, but there's another constellation called the centaur that I think you were talking about. And guess what? I never really saw it until I came to the Southern hemisphere, but it's really bright in the Southern hemisphere. Centaur is a very Southern constellation. So is Argo Navis. And so if people just to, I'll, I'll finish after this little metaphor, if people want to think of what are they talking about? Northern hemisphere stars. Not everybody thinks about this stuff on a daily basis, but if you suspend the earth on a string in the middle of your room, whatever room you're sitting in right now, whether it's your living room, your bedroom and paint stars on the ceiling, 
the walls and the floor. And if you just grant with me that we're on a spherical earth, which we absolutely are, I don't think anyone can come to Australia, and, but we won't get into that whole thing. If you're on a spherical earth, no matter where you are, down is towards the ground, even if you're standing on the bottom of the ball. So if you're standing on the bottom of the ball, you can see the stars painted on the floor, but not the stars on the ceiling because the side of the ball will be in your way. And if you're standing on the top of the ball, you can see the stars on the ceiling, but not on the floor because the bulge of the ball will be in your way. And the further down the ball you go, the more farther down the walls you can see. But just about everywhere, in fact, everywhere on that ball, you can see the walls. Even in the North Pole, you can see the celestial equator. It's going to be right on your horizon. But the you will see the zodiac signs because they're on the wall. They cross above the celestial equator, which is halfway up the wall and below it throughout the year. But no matter where you are, you can see those ecliptic constellations. That's the sun earth dance goes right along basically the center of the wall. So in the middle of the tropics, you can see the wall and you can almost see the, the North pole will be at the, at the ocean and the South pole will be at the ocean. And as you go farther up, you start to lose this, the, the floor a little bit. And the farther up you go, the more of the floor you lose. Anyway, that might be a helpful metaphor, but we can all see the Zodiac and we can also in the, in the Milky Way is basically a ring that's painted across the, <laughs> across the floor and up the walls and around the, you know, perpendicular to that midline. And so we can see, we can see the Milky Way everywhere on earth too. And so the system uses the Zodiac and the Milky Way, and it could be from, I would argue, anywhere on Earth. Um, I think of it as upside down when I'm down here in the Southern Hemisphere. Everything looks upside down to me because I don't feel like I'm upside down, but I'm looking at the posters on the wall and they all look upside down to me because I'm on the lower half of the ball now. And that's as good of an, a proof of that it's not a flat Earth there's a few others that I've seen down here, like Venus is on the other side of the moon when you're in the Southern half. Anyway, we won't get into flat earth, but if, if I have a poster of Jimi Hendrix on my wall and I'm standing on the top of the ball and I always see Jimmy's head is up. When I get to the bottom of the ball, I'm still going to feel like I'm right side up, even though I'm really standing upside down on the ball and I'll look out on the wall and I'll go, wow, Jimi Hendrix is upside down. Just like Orion is upside down, quote unquote, down here. His sword is pointing upward from his belt. Anyway, I'm ready to show some slides, but maybe we could bounce. I, I kicked around a few comments, so I'll bounce it around the horn. No, dude, I think we're good to jump into some slides, man. Yeah, I, uh, I think people would get a lot out of seeing the stars themselves in this particular part of the sky and how the symbols that are laid up in Ophiuchus, which we can start to demonstrate as we're looking at them well you know, i've got good notes from particularly from your work in front of me so you know, if there's anything that gets left out i'll be able to chime in and awesome. make sure we add that on too awesome well jump in at any moment um can you see the stars here on the screen oh it looks like we're actually your screen share is just your stream yard window mm, so you might have yeah, to re yeah. redo it okay. like maybe close it and restart it 
Mm, okay. Closing and restarting there. You know, but while you're figuring out the screen share, I thought it'd be interesting to consider just the name Ophiuchus. Mm. I'm a big language guy, name guy. And we brought up uh, earlier Moses being an Ophiuchus character and how he raises the brazen serpent and how serpents on staffs or poles are a symbol of the uh, this sign that we see consistently and a symbol of saviors in general or salvation in general, general, the uh, word for the brazen serpent is actually Nakash. And that second syllable Kash is basically the same word as the Kush or Kus in Ophiuchus. It's pretty much the same, which is particularly interesting when you consider how that word Kush and in, in philology, S sounds and SH sounds are totally interchangeable. Kush is said to be a uh, the one who begat Nimrod. <laughs> and Kush is a son, I believe, of Ham. And Ham is one of the sons of Noah. So that makes Nimrod a like great grandson of, of Noah. Nimrod is said to be a mighty hunter before the Lord. So right next to Ophiuchus is the mighty hunter before the Lord, Sagittarius. And if Cush or Ophiuchus begets Nimrod, Nimrod, that kind of makes sense because you could see Sagittarius coming coming off of of Ophiuchus, like begetting it. And <laughs> you have any th- thoughts on that? Um, well, that's super interesting. I'm, I've got half my brain trying to figure out, uh, how to share on StreamYard, but well, so Ophiuchus also, um, you know, I don't know about the, the connection with Kush. Um, that's really interesting. I would say that the snake part of the, of the Greek word that gave us Ophiuchus is, is the same word for Ophite and, um, serpent in Greek is Oph. Right. O-P-H. So, um, but yes. So the three sons of Noah, just so that all listeners know my position on that are completely celestial in nature. I can show that Noah is definitely related to Aquarius. I can show you why the vineyard is next to Aquarius and Noah plants the first vineyard and then he gets drunk and the whole Shem, Ham and Japheth story which has been taken literally and then used to divide people. And people actually say, oh, she's a Cushite or he's a Cushite descended from Cush, as if anybody is literally descended from these um, characters in the Bible is, has been used to divide people. But really, Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like a, a, a racism thing even it's because totally you say like, oh, totally if they're racist. descendants of Ham, which means right. black, that means they're yeah. cursed because Ham was cursed. So and, and Ham yeah, that's one of the huge true. problems in the world is all this oh, stellar right. myth taken literally to justify Absolutely. all kinds of dumb stuff. Yeah, but um, so I was listening with half my brain at the other half. I was trying to get the uh, I went over to allow StreamYard to see notes. Can we see if maybe this will work? Can you see my notes now? No, I think you need to go present and then share screen and then choose window and then choose okay. the window that represents your Got it. All right. represents your uh, your slides. I'd have to do share it. Share screen. Okay. Oops. All right. 
And back to that Milky Way thing. Nimrod was said to be the one who commissioned the building of the Tower of Babel. He was like the founder of Babylon. And I think maybe in this story, the Tower of Babel, since it has, you know, since it goes all the way up to, to heaven, so to speak, maybe that's the Milky Way in in terms of where it shows up in the stars. This is right next to the Milky Way begins right next to Sagittarius there, which would be Nimrod. Um, I actually think it's Ophiuchus, but <laughs> like I said. Do you think Ophiuchus I, might be the, the Tower of Babel too? That makes sense it. too. I could tell you why, but. Um, well, well, they never really built it all the way to heaven. So it could be just Ophiuchus was all they got. <laughs> they didn't make Ophiuchus it further than that. the tower that connects us to heaven. It is the tower. Yeah. It is the, it's the, it's the pivot. It's like the clutch on your car. Even if you don't, even if you have an automatic transmission, there's still a clutch in there and it's the connecting between the, you know, the force of the engine and the wheels on the ground. Ophiuchus is the connecting clutch link between the force of the divine and us on the ground. You're absolutely right. Chance that the Zodiac is the, like it's the earth. It's all our earthly gifts, which we need, but we also have this connection to heaven. So I'm still, um, connection to the screen is my slides. What, what am I doing wrong here? Chance just talk me through present share screen. Then window. It's not giving me a new thing will pop up after you click share screen Mm -hmm. and you want to choose the middle button, which says window. Do you see that? Um, Don't show these tips again. Share screen. Pop out this video. I'm not getting the window anymore. Now it's just automatically Hmm. doing. Are you able to see anything that I've got? No, you don't have anything currently being shared. All right. Share screen. And is it asking you if you want to do a Chrome tab or a window or an entire screen? It's not asking any of those things. Sorry to mess up our flow here. (laughs) Present share screen. What happens if you click share screen? Nothing anymore. No. Hmm. Maybe David, why don't you try close your browser, come back into the room and we'll see if yeah. that fixes it. Okay. Drop it. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So Mario, I think that even, uh, you know, I, I think that this, uh, Kush Kush part of Ophiuchus is very revealing mm-hmm. because one of the figures associated with Ophiuchus is Krishna mm-hmm. and Krishna, the word means like swarthy or black. And Ham is the the black word word means black, and that's who begets Kush. So they're the black race, supposedly, in terms of the the biblical historical narrative. I think that there's a lot there. Yeah. And that the word Bacchus comes from, and we know Bacchus is a Jesus figure or a precursor to Jesus. Bacchus comes from the Phoenician Barkus, meaning son of Kush. So Bacchus is Nimrod. Bacchus, there's a lot of people who think that uh, Bacchus, Noah, all the same guy, that all these like founder myths of different civilizations are really referring to the same idea as Noah mm. and his three sons. So Bacchus being Bar Kus in Phoenician, son of Kush, um, means that Bacchus is basically 
unequivocally uh, the same as Nimrod and that the Herodotus even says Jupiter carried Bacchus in his thigh. So oh. there's coming from Sagittarius again. There's that right. Sagittarius connection. It's definitely, you know, the astrotheology of it all is not debatable, but it's interesting to all the different ways that you can link Krishna, Jesus, Bacchus as the same figure once you have that lens. Definitely. No, that that resonates for sure. Um, are we looking better on David's side with uh, screen sharing here? I am getting the pop up now. Introduce Ophiuchus by starting with the god Zeus, who is not Ophiuchus, is demonstrably not an Ophiuchus, but he's fighting a character on this vase. Can you see an ancient vase on your screen? Oh, yeah. That is found in Munich. You can see the accession number right there if you want to go dig up that vase in the museum. You can ask them to see it. This is definitely the god Zeus, and he's fighting one of his most powerful enemies, Typhon. And we know it's Zeus because of the thunderbolt right there, but also the ancient artist or one of the ancient artist's friends who could write has put the name Zeus right there. And that first letter that looks like what we would think of as an I is a Z in ancient Greek. And I'm going to fill in the rest of Zeus because some of the paint has flecked off over the centuries. And you can see he's in this deep lunging posture, which Mario, I'm sure, has encountered in his symbolic research over and over. Where does it come from? This is an artist rendition, not my rendition. You can find this artist rendition on Wikipedia. Wikimedia. I wanted to point out also real quick, yeah. by the way, uh, just so you know for the future, yeah. that spelling of Zeus is actually... Etruscan, which is the uh, proto nice. pro precursors to the Italian people who uh, I, I think might actually be, if not, the, if not the originators, one of the closest cultures to wherever this system originated from really interesting and kind of concealed uh, stuff on the ancient Etruscans. They're, they're like Phoenician, a Phoenician archetype or connected with the Phoenicians. And it makes sense that they might have spread things around the world because that position in Italy gives them access to East and West, you know, as sailors. Very interesting. But yeah, that's the Etruscan way of spelling Zeus. I will, I will, um, you know, throw a counter argument that, like I said, if it's in the first dynasty, Egypt and in the Vedas, it may not be that the Etruscans originated it. But, um, you know, when you get to things like Gobekli Tepe, which is, so ancient, it's more ancient to the Egyptians than the Egyptians are to us. In other words, if it's 9,000, 10,000 BC, that's 6,000 years before 3,000 BC. We're closer to 3,000 BC than they are to 9,000 or 10,000 BC. There was civilizations so ancient um, that they were more ancient to the Egyptians. The first Egyptian texts and images are using this system. So I think it came from something way more ancient. The first Vedas are using this system. So I think it, and and it's different. So it's like it had already evolved by the time it resurfaced in Egypt and resurfaced in ancient India. It's very ancient. Um, And I don't know that it spread around the world after the Egyptians. I think it may go back to some common worldwide culture that's been long forgotten because there was a cataclysm. I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, And when it comes to the 
how, knowing how authentically ancient any texts are, especially the Vedas, where things had to be recopied, rewritten by the priests every 10 years because the climate would destroy the parchment. Who knows how old it really is or what the original versions were like. But I wanted to point out the uh, that letter that looks like an I in, mm. is an Etruscan D or Z. So mm. when, what you're seeing there is either Deus or Zeus. Mm. So you right. see and how you, yeah, you get the name Deus as God and the name Zeus for the top God. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that that DZ letter is uh, could be either way. That's a really great. I'm glad you jumped in with that. And Dionysus is Dios or Dios or Zeus of Nysus, which there was a mountain or a legendary mountain, the Zeus of Nysus or Nyssa. Dionysus means the god of Nysus or Zeus of Nysus. So there was like this whole 1800s school of thought about Chthonic deities versus Olympian deities. And Dionysus would be the Chthonic Zeus, the underworld Zeus or the earthly Zeus. And Again, that mountain, I would argue, is associated with Ophiuchus, which we'll introduce Ophiuchus in just one second. But everyone look at Zeus's posture. I'm just going to show the constellation that plays Zeus is the constellation we call Hercules right there. Can you see it on the screen? Yeah, beautiful. And I'll move it over and put it right above the outline of Zeus from the ancient artwork. And you can see the heel extended, raised, the deep knee bend in the constellation, in the artwork, the powerful weapon raised overhead in the constellation, in the artwork, the interesting outstretched arm, which why, why does Zeus have to reach out and touch the wing of his adversary? Because in the heavens, the constellation has this outstretched arm, which plays a role in lots of different myths around the world. So you can see that Zeus is associated with Hercules. And we find that around the world where the most powerful God in the pantheon will be associated with Hercules, the constellation, because of that very powerful weapon. Sometimes it's a club envisioned as a club, sometimes as a sword, sometimes as a thunderbolt, sometimes as a mace, um, sometimes as a sling like David and Goliath. But who could Hercules be fighting? Well, in this image, he's fighting Typhon, who has this human torso down to the waist and then serpent legs below the waist and wings. And in the sky, look back over at Hercules. Who could Hercules be fighting? Well, he could be fighting a lot of different constellations nearby, but if he's throwing down thunderbolts at Typhon in this story, Typhon was actually thunderbolt proof, but you see how there's a constellation just below Hercules in the sky. I've put a, like a thunderbolt. Can you guys see? Yeah, yeah, we can see everything on your screen. Right on. So that is the constellation Ophiuchus right below Hercules. And that is my contender for who Zeus is fighting in this story. He's fighting Typhon. Typhon is associated with Ophiuchus. Typhon was thunderbolt proof. That's why he was so dangerous. The Olympian gods were trying to defeat Typhon and even Zeus with his thunderbolt, which was the most powerful weapon on Olympus. The thunderbolts were bouncing off Typhon. So he finally had to do what? Do you guys know how he finally defeated Typhon? Dropped a mountain on him. Yes, he slammed a mountain down on his head. Can you see how Ophiuchus looks a little bit like a mountain? There's a triangle on top of it. 
on the head. Yeah, specifically. Yeah, there's a there's a the the constellation Ophiuchus to introduce our listeners to Ophiuchus has this oblong central body, oblong meaning like a tombstone, <laughs> this rectangle, tall rectangles like your gas pedal on your car is taller than it is wide, so it's oblong with a triangle on top. Sometimes it plays a mountain. Sometimes it plays the very pivot of heaven. Sometimes it plays a monster with serpent legs. How could it play a monster with serpent legs? Well, so Ophiuchus doesn't just have that central body. On either side, there's a serpent that he's holding, and the name Ophiuchus, as as we were talking about the etymology, does involve serpent holder, serpent bearer, holding a serpent, and you can see why in the sky it looks like he's holding a serpent. But the legs down below, it's like a very long body with very short legs. So sometimes an Ophiuchus figure will have a very big shield or a long tunic that reaches down, like because the legs are kind of short, right? But the legs are even faint. So let's just remove the legs and pretend that we're envisioning it without those legs and turn the serpent halves into the two legs coming out of the bottom of the torso. Can you see what I'm arguing? Can you see how the two serpent halves of Ophiuchus match up with the two, I put one and two on the legs of Typhon. Leg one on the constellation, that's usually called the serpent's tail. Leg two is the serpent's head. And you can see there's a little hoop or triangle on top of it, a little ring. It's composed of basically four stars, three across the top, and then they come down to the serpent head there. Can you see what I'm arguing here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I see what you're saying, for sure. And it might seem like a stretch, but if we look throughout the world, if you see it over and over, eventually you realize that these creatures or mythical figures with a torso and two legs or two fishtails are associated with Ophiuchus. This is a mermaid from a, a book in the 1500s. Note she has two tails, just like Ophiuchus has two serpent halves. Look at her arm on the tail number one side. See how Ophiuchus's arm is higher on that side? It's like holding the top of the tail. And then look at her arm on this tail down here. She's holding down by basically the thigh of the fish leg. This is a Ophiuchus figure. A mermaid with two tails is an Ophiuchus figure, just like we see on Starbucks coffee, where she has stars in between Starbucks and coffee. We got stars on top of her head. We have stars on top of her head. We have a crown above Ophiuchus and right next to Hercules. We have a crown. That's the northern crown. It actually has seven stars. So Mario, you were talking about the seven stars with an eighth in the center. And I noticed you had the Leontocephalus, the lion headed God who's in chains right? He's in chains and he has, he's holding up a little crown with seven stars. And then there's an eighth in the center on on, uh, one of your pictures. Why is he in chains? Well, Ophiuchus figures are sometimes bound in chains. Those two serpent halves can become chains like the chains of Prometheus or the bound, you know, when Loki is bound, he's chained up like Prometheus too. And the, Leontocephaline figure from Mithraic tradition 
I'm convinced is an Ophiuchus figure. And that's why he's got that seven star crown above one of his upraised hands. So just absorb the picture of Ophiuchus for a second. We don't need to get too, um, I don't need to get too. Oh yeah. Abraxas. So I just was waiting for you to bring up Abraxas. Uh, and the word, the word for these guys <laughs> with snakes for legs is that anguiped. Anguiped. Ooh. Anguiped. I didn't know that word either. Chances. Yeah. Dude, the Abraxas is such an important weave. You would see this guy on coins and on amulets all throughout the Greco-Roman world. A lot of times with the word Yao, I-A-O, which is the Iota Alpha Omega. I am the Alpha and Omega. This is the prototype Jesus before the Roman Catholic Church co-opted the symbolism or you know, reduced it down. I mean, yep, there it is. There's a, I, yeah, so Iota Alpha Omega at the bottom of that. This so is you can Braxis. see a rooster's head. Yeah, this is, so this is off of, like Chance was saying, this is off of a gem. This, these things were called gems or jewels, even though they're just kind of hammered out of um, metal there. But it was like a talisman or a token that certain, like esoteric groups would carry. And, you can see again, it's a torso ending in two serpentine legs or anguiped. Is that how you said it? Um, chance. That's really interesting. He's carrying a, like a weapon in one hand and a shield in the other hand. And as you said, down at the bottom, there's the, the, uh, letters for alpha and omega. What I believe was going on were these are all esoteric traditions that are connected to this ancient worldwide system. And they were swirling around in the Hellenistic era, Hellenistic meaning after Alexander the Great spread Hellenic or Greek culture around all the way to Egypt, all the way to India. Basically he got to India before he died at a young age, but that mixture of Greek and all these other Mediterranean cultures mixing around created this real stew out of which a lot of stuff arose, including that's when the Gnostic texts were swirling around and the texts that were collected up into the Bible. So these are all, I would argue, argue Ophiuchus figures within an ancient system. Jesus is an Ophiuchus figure. This Abraxas figure is an Ophiuchus figure. I'll show one more. This is off of a actually Mithraic talisman. I believe that Mithraic is very key for history. I don't, I don't believe it was necessarily a good key. It was like a deep state that was overthrowing the Roman empire and they never quite figured out who was overthrowing them. And Mithraic wasn't a religion. It was a secret society. It was a, it was a, uh, a very interesting, I've, I've obviously written about it in myth and trauma and also in the undying stars, but notice again, this is on the other side of a Mithraic talisman. On one side is Mithras killing the bull. On this side is Abraxas, and there's the IAW that you mentioned, Chance. So we can see it's actually in a, that's an Omega, which is the Greek I mean, yeah, so right. Yeah, that's a lowercase Omega. Sorry, which is a, <laughs> looks like a little W for us. Um, right. well, what you said, I want to just throw one more no, thing on the fire. This yeah. might not need to open into a topic, but <laughs> someday I don't know if you've ever done this, but someday you might consider like putting your astrotheology glasses on and looking at so-called history or historical figures, because I think, you know, you brought up Alexander the great spreading the culture from Greek to India, from Greece to India to Egypt. There's a strong case to be made that Alexander the great is a 
repeat of the Dionysus or Bacchus figure. Cause mm. if you look into it, Dionysus is said to have done the exact same circuit and like going, gone in to conquer India and et cetera. And mm. you, some of the tra- traits about Alexander, including being supposedly born of a virgin, there's, mm. I think a there, there that oh, there's somebody sure. at one point may have uh, written our history for mm. us that is just been accepted since then. And we might, who knows, maybe there's even a cover up of whatever uh, system came before. I, I have no I, idea. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't dispute that uh, possibility in the least. And, but there was a Hellenistic period, I believe where all this stuff was mixing around and Greek ideas were being batted around in Egypt. And anyway, we can see that this is an Ophiuchus figure. I'll just pull up Ophiuchus. Can you see the outline of Ophiuchus there below the, on the right-hand side, yeah. the central body. Now look at the weapon <laughs> that Abraxas is holding. It's, as anyone who played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, if you're Gen X, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a flail. Look at the flail. On He's got an upraised flail on one side and a small shield on the other side. There's the what I would call a flail on the constellation Ophiuchus. Can you see it? Sure. Yeah, it's right there. And I don't know if the little circle of the serpent's head is a little tiny shield. We could argue maybe it's a different constellation like Libra. We'll show Libra in a little bit. But I would say there's a good case can be made that that little circle is the little shield. You could maybe argue for the northern crown as well. I'm not dogmatic about it, but... Clearly, this is an Ophiuchus figure with the two legs again, just like I was showing. So go yeah. ahead. Yeah, I would love to add something real quick. Yeah. And uh, I definitely want to get through as many images as possible because I'm finding all of this like extremely fascinating. But this is a good example of kind of uh, what I'm referring to when I think and I get this really strong hunch and hit that Ophiuchus is very closely tied to Mercury, Hermes and other sort of Mm. related figures. Um, The serpent connection with Mercury and the Caduceus, right? Um, The fact that Mercury is considered a divine androgyne or having Mm -hmm. this dualistic sort of personality uh, that's being displayed in Ophiuchus too, with obviously Mm -hmm. one side being the head of the serpent, the other side being the tail. Um, Also Mercury Hermes is very much related to the phallus as well. And in a lot of Ophiuchus imagery, that I saw, it's very clear that, you know, that serpent could be the serpent between our legs, you know, that there is some sort of correspondence there. Uh, When I see a snake going through the legs of a naked nude man and the head is just popping out, you know, it seems like there is a genitalia sort of uh, weave that you can kind of pull out with that, in my opinion. Um, And uh, this figure here, Abraxas, it's interesting. So the uh, the phallus being the cock and uh, the, the phallus and the cock, the rooster is associated with Hermes Mercury, too. There's lots of examples of uh, this animal being uh, associated with this figure. And Manly P. Hall, at least, I think is really interesting. He says that Abraxas, the axis in Abraxas relates to the world axis, which is the symbolic bridge between realms, right? Going from uh, the North Pole to the Northern Sky. And this is kind of what I see as the stairway to heaven, right? And so it'd be in the middle of the heavens, which is like a great 
right wheel. And it's not uncommon for Abraxas, at least I think this is more of a modern sort of thing to depict Abraxas riding a chariot as well, being pulled by four horses. And so it just reminds me of that spinning of heaven and this kind of axle or this bridge that connects these different worlds sort of together. So when I see Abraxas, I see mercurial symbolism personally Um, and that flail being used potentially to uh, whip those horses. There's something else I got to throw on the fire here that we talked about, and maybe David was going going in and out whenever I brought this up, but how Krishna is an Ophiuchus figure. Krishna means swarthy or black in the Hindi language. We're talking about black gods, the black sun, the underworld God, God of the underworld, right? This, This name, Abraxas, Ab means father, Ra is son, and the X-I-S at the end is uh, an X can be like a CH sound. So it's Kush, it's Kush again, basically. We're getting base Ab, father, Ra, son, Kush, black. So we're getting the black son, the black father, son, or the underworld father, God. Like that's the name of this entity. And to weave on the Buddha Mercury train, uh, put that in, you've proven pretty well that Buddha is uh, symbolized by Ophiuchus and Buddha and Mercury share uh, the same name of a mother, Maya. <laughs> and mm, in in the right. East, they actually called this the planet that we call Mercury in the West. They call that planet Buddha. So there's for sure Hermes and Buddha are a syncretizable figure. And even if Hermes and Mercury in the Greek mythos gets all over the place and might show up as other characters in the Zodiac, I think there's a strong case to be made for him being an Ophiuchus figure, especially when you fold in the Buddha aspect. Yeah, well, well argued on both counts, Chance and Mario. I, I, I'll throw on even more onto that. So Krishna is definitely Ophiuchus, and I've got a slide that shows that. And he rides in a chariot in the in the Mahabharata, the great battle of Kurukshetra. This is ancient India, Sanskrit texts, and. It's the Bhagavad Gita is within Mahabharata and that's Krishna is being the charioteer. So we'll get back to Krishna a little bit later, but also what you were saying about the phallic symbolism, Mario is not just the serpent that's being held, but look at the central body of Ophiuchus. And so not only Krishna, who's Krishna is technically an avatar of Vishnu and Vishnu is also Ophiuchus. He dreams the world into existence with a Lotus coming out of his navel. I didn't, I didn't show it. So I'll just say it here. You can see the serpent's head as a Lotus growing out of the navel of Ophiuchus, but also some of the coins of Abraxas or versions like Abraxas, like the uh, Indo Greek King Telephos T E L E P H O. P-H-O-S, look up coins of telephos. It's kind of hard to make out, but there's actually lotus blossoming out of the ends of the serpents that are his legs. Mm -hmm. So the the logos is the lotus. It's the, you know, the savior. Vishnu is the savior of that trinity, which corresponds to Christ of the father, son, holy ghost trinity. So again, if Krishna is an avatar of Vishnu, it's definitely Jesus. And all of this is Ophiuchus. Yeah. And that, so if, 
if people aren't necessarily following along, look at the Ophiuchus on the one side, I've written flail on the other side is the serpent's head. That is definitely a Lotus in some myths. And you have like the tug of war where um, in ancient Egyptian symbology, where one side is pulling with Lotus and one side is pulling with papyrus ropes, like a tug of war with the pivot in the center. Anyway, what I was going to say is there's also a lingam of Shiva, a Shiva lingam that is a phallic symbol that they pour um, offerings onto in India. Even to this day, they still do that. And it's representative of that central figure, uh, central part of Ophiuchus. And this, and I'll just circle back and then we can move on. But I'm providing a little bit more support, Mario, to say, yeah, I think you're right about a Hermes or Mercury connection, because in Greece, they have a tradition of a thing called a herm, which is yep. like, which is like a Shiva lingam. It's basically a post with a Hermes head on top, but often it's a post with Hermes head on top and a phallus. That's all they show is the head. And um, it's very much a phallic symbol. So going back to the Etruscan thing, they would call those points uh, sometimes I'd even called that type of Godhead on a post, a, a terminus, or they, mm. you know, some researchers, uh, academics say that there's a God called terminus mm. that, and other times it's sometimes it's terminus, sometimes it's Hermes, but I think mm. they're missing the boat because in the Etruscan version of Hermes, what his name is termes. So the terminal point where, you know, the, the boundary marker of the Zodiac is Ophiuchus. Cause that's where you get step up and off the Zodiac. He's doing that. Right. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And David, you just kind of blew my mind right now. Um, so what you're saying is that Ophiuchus is also encoding, right? The world mountain. And, uh, mm-hmm. at least I believe in the Vedic world, it's, it's mm-hmm. Visuki, the world serpent wrapped around the mountain that's being pulled. And that's Absolutely. kind of churning this mountain, right? That's what you're saying. That's right. That's and amazing. Vishnu is the pivot himself. Vishnu himself acts as the pivot. And I could have thrown up a picture where um, from Anchor Wat, where they show that very tug of war going on. And right above is Indra, who carries the thunderbolt. And he's in the exact position as the constellation Hercules. Mm. I could show it Excellent. from Anchor Watt, but I don't have it on this particular slideshow. I'd, I'd shown it uh, in some other recent, uh, in a presentation I gave in Southern California, a live one. But um, so that's what's going on. This is the pivot between earth and heaven. And so liminal figures like Hermes would make sense to, they, they boundary cross between the two realms. So let's, let's just, let's just point out, <laughs> I forgot to say one thing before I click the button. We had a rooster-headed deity who has serpent legs, which we could argue is a feathered serpent in some way, right? I mean, am I, am yeah. I, is that too much of a stretch if it's got a, 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 a cock head, as you said, a rooster head and serpent legs? It's a feathered serpent. And here we have a Apkalu from ancient Mesopotamia. This is from a bas-relief of Nineveh. Um, very, very ancient probably 700 uh, to 900 BC, I think is what archaeologists put it as, but he's got a bird's head, an eagle head. And this is definitely an Ophiuchian figure, which I'll show, but here's the oldest known 
depiction of a feathered serpent from the Americas. This is from the famous Stila 19 at La Venta. So it's thought to be Olmec, very ancient, and it's got the same feathered serpent motif with suspicious handbag, <laughs> right? The, this is argued about in esoteric circles. What's the handbag? Where's, where's the bag? Well, you have to understand that these are Ophiuchus figures and then you'll know who it is. So this is an Ophiuchus figure, just like Abraxas, this Apkalu with the wings and the handbag and he's holding a pine cone up. This is the constellation Libra. I just pointed out. So Ophiuchus is standing above Scorpio. And to the right of Scorpio is Libra. I just outlined, I just put the label for Libra. Can everyone see Libra? Can you guys see it? Hopefully viewers at home right yes. above the word Libra. It's, it's basically a triangle with two scales or lines descended from it. And one scale is lower than the other scale. Can you see that? See how one side, the scale is a little bit longer and lower. And to the left is Scorpio. Can you see the menacing figure of a scorpion just below the feet of Ophiuchus? Yep. And so the lower part of Libra is on the Scorpio side. Now this I've put up to prove that this Apkalu is Ophiuchus. I'm going to have to take a detour through the Archangel Michael, who in Revelation 12 is described as fighting Satan, actually, that great serpent, the serpent with 10 heads. He's always depicted in artwork standing on. He cast down Satan. He's always depicted as standing on Satan or the devil. Can you see it down there in the picture? How he's standing on him? Yeah, and I think people listening are probably familiar with that. Yeah, and if you go, just go search Mike, Michael versus Devil on Wikipedia. This is this one. I like this one by Bartolomeo Viverini from the 1400s. Here's another one that shows it more clearly. Yes, yeah, so he's definitely standing up. Look at their spears in both cases. See how they're both using a spear going down into the dragon? I'll take that one away. Now, here's the spear. Remember, I said Ophiuchus figures carry staves, spears, rods, um, Hercules figures carry thunderbolts, maces, clubs. Sometimes Michael will have a sword, but notice what else Michael is holding. So, so you see how the spear is almost at the right angle for Ophiuchus, but look what else Michael's holding in his other hand. Can you see it? It's right the here? scales. It's the scales. And if you look closely, you'll see that the devil is pulling down on one of the scales. <laughs> There's two little souls in the scales. One soul is go- getting pulled down them by the devil and saying, ah, and the others on the side that's going up has the hands folded and beatific expression. That one's going to heaven and the other one's getting pulled down by the. That's really interesting symbolism because <laughs> it kind of shows how what I think is true is that the evil in the world actually makes good people better. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that descend down into evil, all, all that ends up happening in the long run is that they train good people to be more good. Well, what I think is going on is we're all the zodiac signs is all our different parts. And we've got these different parts and they, and, uh, and we have to get them all in harmony rather than, but interesting, interesting. Observation. If he's pulling down one side that mm-hmm. causes the other side to go up. It's, uh, and look at which side is down in the heavens. Libra side, the Libra, the scales are pulled down on the Scorpio side. Scorpio is the devil that's being stood on by Michael. Can you see that? Yeah. 
Right. Ophiuchus is standing on a serpent and Ophiuchus is holding a scales. I don't think anyone would argue with me that Michael, the archangel, who's standing on the devil, casting him down, is Ophiuchus. So therefore, if the scales are Libra, now go back and look at the Apkalu. What's he holding in his lower hand? He's holding a handbag. That corresponds to the scales that Michael's holding. That corresponds to Libra. Can you see how the handbag looks like Libra? Yeah, you, all you'd have to do is just draw the outline with the more rounded and close the bottom and the top triangle would be the handle. That's right. And in his upper hand, he's holding the famous pine cone, the pineal gland, the enlightenment, the connection to the divine. Look at the upper hand of Ophiuchus in this case is the serpent's head. That's the pine cone above Libra. Can you see what I'm arguing here? And the wings are then the serpent tail on the left side of Ophiuchus. Mario. Yeah, yeah no, I, I see what you're saying. Very interesting, man. Um, I, I'm loving this presentation. So just I want to say many thanks. You're, you're connecting a lot of dots for me. And uh, we're actually I see what you did there because it's connect the dot in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but no, this is very intriguing. And then, of course, you already said it. But, you know, um, there's three main aspects of Scorpio that people have said over time. Right. The scorpion, the serpent and then mm. the eagle or phoenix. So the serpentine symbolism, it's uh, it's right there for sure. Yeah, it's in, in the feathered serpent, you know, that appears around the world, including in the Americas. See, this is why this is very ancient. Here's a gate called the Gate of the Sun or the Puerta del Sol in Tiwanaku in Bolivia, modern day Bolivia. It's near Lake Titicaca. It's very famous. Can you see that it looks like A, a gate and B, we've got a figure holding two staffs or, um, you know, keys or serpents or whatever he's holding. Yeah. That yeah, is an Ophiuchus that. figure. And Ophiuchus is itself a door. And actually, if you zoom in, all the little figures all around are in a deep Hercules lunging posture. So this is an Ophiuchus gate. And Jesus says, I am the gate. I think Chance already alluded to that, or maybe Mario, you alluded to that. This is Ophiuchus again. And so what's going on? This is my most recent book. Invoking the Ancient Gods in You, where I really lay out my argument about the, it's connected to IFS and it's connected to, we have this higher self that's been excluded. And here's why. Oh, here's the contents. <laughs> Chance, Chance notes, Myth and Trauma has a whole chapter on Ophiuchus. <laughs> Fair, it does. But um, I wasn't done yet because the contents of Invoking the Ancient Gods in You has chapter five, what would Ophiuchus do? So it's really central to this whole system. Ophiuchus is really central to the whole system. And I'll, I'll kind of show you what I think is going on. And if you don't mind, I'll quickly zip over to Stellarium. How, how are we doing on time? Do we need to kind of... Uh no i think we're good um i'll figure out how it gets edited later but (laughs) if you guys can go for another maybe 42 minutes that'd be perfect okay let me show some stellarium to everybody can you see it on the screen right on so here's stellarium um I had it all prepped, but I should have gotten rid of these labels because those are annoying so let's get rid of those and here we are in the sky. What I'm trying to show here is the sun moving through the zodiac. So 
there's our Ophiuchus, but let's go back to noon. And I am in the Northern Hemisphere, so I'm looking to the south to see the Zodiac. We won't get into too much celestial mechanics here, but um, here's Ophiuchus, if you can see, just to the right. But I'm putting the sun basically right above south. And I'm just going to keep it there as I move one day at a time throughout the year. Now, the planets are going to zoom in and out around the sun. You're going to see planets. I don't know why they're looking so big today on Stellarium. I'll have to figure that out. But the the one bright object that's not zipping around, it's staying pretty much above the letter S in the center of your screen, that's the sun. It's going through Taurus right now. Can you guys see the sun? I wish I could put my finger on it and everybody see, but it's right in the middle. It's, <laughs> I don't know why those planets are so big. Yeah, we can see it. Okay. So this is the sun right here in the, right? This is the constellation Cancer, the crab. I think this must be Jupiter or something. Let me put the labels on so everyone can just see for sure what's going on. Oh, Venus. It's got Venus bigger than the sun for some reason. I can't figure out what's going on with my Stellarium, but that's the sun. If you look closely, you can see it says sun. So what we're watching is the sun. And I've got to leave the other planets because if I make the other planets disappear, the sun will also disappear off of the screen. So let's just get rid of those labels and keep your eye on the sun, which is that one, and watch it go through real quick. As we go through, what's happening is throughout the year, each day at noon, the sun is slowly moving through a different background of stars, a different constellation. And the background stars that the sun moves through are the zodiac signs. It's moving along the ecliptic. Boom. There we are in December 13th. It's crossing. You see what it's crossing right here? Yeah. The leg of Ophiuchus. So the ecliptic path, the path of the sun, the path along which eclipses happen, does cross Ophiuchus. So Ophiuchus has a claim to being in the zodiac but Ophiuchus is left out so one foot in one foot out classic classic liminal space liminal figure a a threshold figure oops time let's get back to noon that's 12 o'clock and apologies for daylight savings time it sucks we should get rid of it but um look at the sun you see as we move through the year now it's in Sagittarius now it's in Capricorn It's moving higher above the horizon during the summer months of the Northern Hemisphere. It would be, this would be opposite for the Southern Hemisphere. We're in the Northern right now, but you you can see it moving through the background stars. This is really all I wanted to show is that it's going through all the Zodiac background constellations as well as Ophiuchus. So now it's in Gemini. Now it's in Cancer. Now it's coming up on Leo. We'll just get it up to Ophiuchus one more time so everyone can hopefully see what I'm talking about. It's going through Leo. It's going through Virgo. It's coming up to Libra that we saw in the diagram. There's Libra right there. It's coming up to the multiple heads of Scorpio. So Scorpio often plays a serpent with multiple heads. Think of the Hydra that Hercules has to fight. Now it's going through Ophiuchus again. So, um, and I could, 
it is kind of fun to sometimes remove the horizon. You can see all the way down as if the earth was a crystal ball and didn't get in the way. You could see all the way down to the Southern celestial pole down there. It's kind of interesting that that point of intersection Mm. hits so perfectly on the 13th day of the 12th month, you know, Mm. 12 and 13. That question (laughs) is a 12 and 13. Fascinating. Esoteric uh, calendar. Good observation. Right. And then I think it's interesting too that it hits the knee like that. And, Mm. uh, you know, the beginning of Capricorn, which is not too far away from that, uh, corresponds with the knee. Uh, Capricorn corresponds Mm. with the knees. So that's kind of curious too. It is very interesting. And actually, if you look closely at Ophiuchus, one foot is in the Milky Way and one foot is not. Um, Let me show it here. Can you see it on the screen? One foot is on the land, one foot is in the sea. And you can see that in Revelation chapter 10, where one of the angels is described as having one foot on the land, one foot in the sea. Can you see it mm-hmm. on the picture? Totally. And, and also, let me riff one more time on Mario's observation of Ophiuchus as Hermes. Like I said, Hermes sometimes seems to be Aquarius, but I do see a connection between Aquarius and Ophiuchus sometimes. Ophiuchus, if you've read, Star Myths Volume 4, and I know you have Chance, which is about Norse myths. There's a Norse god who is the herald of the gods, just like Mercury or Hermes is the herald or messenger of the gods. Who's the Norse god who's the herald of the gods? Heimdall. That would be Heimdall. Now, Heimdall carries a huge trumpet or horn, the Yaller horn, and it wraps around his body. Can you see how the serpent of Ophiuchus could look like the Yaller horn of Heimdall? And you remember me bringing up Ham or Ham, son of Noah, which means black. And what's the first syllable of Heimdall? Ham. Mm, Very interesting. Let's just for... um, just for argument's sake, if you can see in the funny comments. thing is in the, the Marvel movies that have mm-hmm. Thor in them, they mm-hmm. made Heimdall a black guy and all the rest of the Asgardians are white. That is true. Heimdall. There's a really cool old um, picture of Heimdall. I'm not going to find it in time, obviously on this Wikipedia where it shows his horn really wrapped around his body in a very Ophiuchian way. The artist. We don't. Doesn't he also like guard or or manage the Rainbow Rainbow Bridge? Rainbow Bridge. He's right next to the Milky Way. He's the liminal figure between Asgard and Midgard, which is Earth. I'm not finding the really nice one where it's wrapped around him, but um, it's wrapped. Trust me, it's wrapped around him just like in the sky. And Heimdall is the child of either eight or nine mothers. I forget which. And so I'll give you one more bit of esoteric celestial there. There's an old song that says father Abraham had seven sons, seven sons had father Abraham sometimes descended from a constellation will be right below it. So Ophiuchus figures will often be descended from Hercules figures. Okay. But sometimes they'll arise from. So Heimdall has nine or eight or nine mothers. Remember how I said Scorpio has eight or nine heads or sometimes 10 heads. The dragon in revelation has, I think, uh, 
I think seven. Seven heads and ten crowns or seven heads and ten horns. But anyway, the dragon in Revelation is definitely um, Scorpio. Heimdall has eight or nine mothers. That's because he's rising up out of Scorpio. Okay. Um, let's, let me just zip through a few more now that we've gone to Stellarium. I think it actually is a good point for me to bring up because you just yeah. had that image of the gate up again. And this yeah. is the God of gates. There's some yeah. philology that I think you'll find fascinating here that all these figures, they hold a staff or a pole, right? Mm. <laughs> well, what's that phonetic is of the pole P to L mm. pole. The word gate or door in Greek is pool, like P-U-L-E, pula. In Hindi, it's pola. What do they call, what's the epithet, the first word that comes to mind before Minerva or Athena? Palace. <laughs> palace. So Very the word palace is said to refer to wisdom. And of course, the Ophiuchus figures refer to wisdom. But when we say palace Athena or palace Minerva, we're also saying the gate of Minerva, the gate of Athena. And you make a great case for Athena being Ophiuchus. She's got the, the <laughs> ages. The ages yep. has the fringe of serpents around the bottom of it, which is the, the snake legs. And she's holding a spear or a pole. The, uh, the crested helm is another symbol. There's yeah, a lot we're there. Show, yeah, we'll show Athena or Minerva in a moment. So what I think is going on, let me just explain why wisdom gods or goddesses are associated with Ophiuchus. I believe what is happening is it's describing what's going on in our inner landscape. And does that also correspond to a, a spirit landscape where there are actual, you know, pleroma or gods or um, invisible realm? I'm not denying it. I think it's more likely than not. Yes, but it's definitely going on inside of us. The internal family systems that I mentioned talks about we have all these different parts and because of childhood trauma or trauma in other circumstances, we can become disconnected from ourselves. We actually will become disconnected from ourselves as a survival mechanism. Modern cutting edge psychologists who deal with trauma, not all of them, the, these pioneers of trauma like Gabor Mate or Richard Schwartz or Peter Levine or there, there's, there's a group. They're by no means the entire psychology field um, is talking this way. This is a um, pioneering group who explain why we disconnect from self as a survival mechanism, uh, especially as an infant or a young child who depends on your parents. You will suppress yourself if you've if the other parts of you believe that they need to, that they need to, to survive. And that's what's being depicted over and over in these myths of the higher self figure, such as Jesus being suppressed or sent down to the underworld or buried. This is from Genesis 37. This is the story of the brothers, the 12 brothers killing Joseph or they don't actually kill him. They put him down in a hole and then they sell him into slavery in Egypt. But eventually he comes back because higher self can be suppressed, can be 
no matter what happens to it, it can come back. Jesus is, you know, speared in the side and crown of thorns comes back. He's a higher self figure, an Ophiuchus figure. Inanna, the goddess of Sumer, she goes down to the underworld. She's hung up on a hook for three days. Another Ophiuchus figure, that flail could also be a hook. The serpent's tail could be a hook. She comes back because what they're showing is that no matter what your higher self has gone through, you actually still have access to it. It's indestructible. It's divine. It's connected to the divine. So Joseph, in this painting by Tissot, he was a very famous 1800s painter. Um, he's showing Joseph telling his dreams. Oh, he's connected to dreams. He's able to interpret dreams. He's able to hear the voice of the divine and interpret it properly. That's what our higher self is able to do. But the brothers are like, let's kill him. <laughs> I'm sick of this guy. Not, it, we do it without even knowing that it happened. And then we forget that it happened because defense is a defense mechanism. You can see the brothers faces. They're like, I'm about sick of this kid, mm -hmm. but look at the painting. And I'm going to show how this is. Oops. I messed up. Let, let me, uh, can you see it? Can you see if this is Ophiuchus on a mound? Yeah. All right. There's two. And the brothers even kind of resemble either the, the nine heads of Scorpio or the just maybe yeah, even many, a, a nine sign Zodiac because how many, yeah. How many children of Israel are there? There's 12. Tiso has only put 10 in his painting, but you've got kind of like some twins over on the left, but look at where Joseph is. He's up on a mound. Now, can you see, I put Ophiuchus on the right of your screen. Can you, anyone see the Milky way? Oh, sure. I'll put in, I'll put in all that. Here's, we, we've now become familiar. The, the brothers, the children of Israel are the, are the Zodiac. They're in Genesis 49. I think I even put it on here. It becomes very clear in the blessing. You know, they're, they're all given different traits of the Zodiac. Can you see so the in, smoke? Can I throw one more thing on yeah, your plow here is uh, Eusebius, the church father, father mm -hmm. of ecclesiastical history. Mm -hmm. He has something in his writings where he claims that the Phoenicians called Kronos or Saturn Israel. So when we mm. say, <laughs> obviously the Hebrew language is connected to the Phoenician language. When we say the children of Israel, it's esoterically encoding the children of Kronos, children of time, which is what the ecliptic, the Zodiac is. I just wanted to throw that out there that, you know, this uh, this character Israel that begets Joseph and his brothers, that's time. That's Kronos. That's Saturn as the father of the gods. Yes. And Kronos carries a sickle. Look on the left side of Ophiuchus. <laughs> um, oh, that's their uh, father, right? Yeah. It's a very interesting. Um, I've got a whole chapter called the golden age because Saturn, Kronos, Saturnian figures rule over golden ages. Ophiuchus is a Saturnian figure that gets suppressed and sent down. The golden age is when you weren't disconnected from yourself. Now you are, and you want to get back to being connected with yourself. But can you see how the painting, just to move it along, he's put Joseph next to some smoke rising from the brothers cooking their lunch there. Yeah. Perfect it's, illustration of the Milky Way. It's the perfect Milky Way. Now, remember how we said that I showed you Stellarium to show that the sun goes through the foot. The foot of Ophiuchus dips down into the realm of the Zodiac. 
can you see there's the ecliptic line i've drawn it through the zodiac constellations and the foot of ophiuchus look at in genesis 49 that's where we find out that the brothers are the children of israel are associated with the different zodiac signs people argue over which one's which but you can clearly see that ophiuchus has a foot down amongst the brothers <laughs> look in the painting Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is a beautiful painting, man. I, I love everything you're pointing out and people um, underestimate one legged or one footed mm. symbolism. It says so much when you're decoding an old painting or a statue or a tarot card or something like that. There's a lot that can be conveyed um, by highlighting one foot. And I'm just reminded of some tarot cards with the magician and he's making an as above, so below kind of gesture with his body, right? He's doing the mm. same thing. He's pointing upward with his hand, pointing downward with his foot. Um, you're going to see Mercury Hermes doing this too quite a bit. A lot of times he's standing on one foot and he's kind of has one finger kind of up in the air. The way I always interpret this is kind of like what you said. It's like um, being a bridge between worlds. Right. And so you you are connecting the above and the below. And the way I tend to look at it, too, is I also separate what's above and below. Um, so I kind of see uh what's called world axis symbolism kind of baked in here. Uh, but I love the contrast too, between him being younger, his hair is exposed. Everyone mm. else has caps on, mm. you know, um, even he had, he's dressed a little differently than everyone else. And just like what you're saying, it does seem as though, um, it's being implied that he's on a central mound or a central mountain or something that's kind of a, an ascension point, if you will. Right. Really great. Great analysis. These paintings, and it goes back to paintings, you know, from the 1300s, the 1400s, but also ancient artwork that's on the sides of temples in Egypt or India. The, the celestial symbolism is just astonishing once you see it. And yes, that, that as above, so below, or the connecting the two realms to really clear when you, when you spell it out and look at this picture and, Often that upraised hand will have like a thumb and two fingers. And if you look at the serpent head, there's three little stars that create the um, serpent head. If we were to zoom in on the stars of the serpent head of Ophiuchus, there's, it's, they're not evenly spaced. It's like the thumb is on the left or closest to the body. And then there's like two fingers and you'll see Jesus do that same kind of um, upraised symbolism. So what I believe is, being depicted, they're not just doing this for fun. They're saying, this happened to you. You suppressed your higher self, your connection to the divine, your connection to the heavens. I love what you pointed out, Mario. They've all got caps on their heads that cover up their, you know, their uh, top lotus chakra or the infinite chakra. I guess we could argue maybe that that one guy doesn't on the left of the smoke, but Definitely, it's like he's connected to the heavens. They're connected to the earth. This artist is depicting it, but he's also incorporating all this celestial imagery. Um, you could just do this over and over with the... And yet, I've been talking about this. I've tried to send it to university art departments. They're, they just ignore it. Um, the, the self has all these... In, these are um, words that... Richard Schwartz talks about the, the characteristics of self, calm, confidence, compassion, connectedness, curiosity. Those are the traits that self exhibits innately. 
in everybody. But when these different parts take over for defensive reasons, we act in ways that we don't, that are unwelcome. They're doing it for defensive reasons because of they're trying to hide trauma. And that's what I believe these myths are showing. And they're saying the, the solution is to get back in touch with that buried self. You don't even know you have it because you're the parts that have buried the self have done such a effective cover up. They're like, what, what, what self buried under the subconscious uh, <laughs> memories? Uh, we, I don't, I don't see any self around here, officer. We, the, we didn't, we didn't do away with the self, but this, the myths are pointing us to getting reconnected with self as that is how you start to exhibit all those characteristics. It's not by trying to imitate Jesus. That's why I have the chapter called what would Ophiuchus do? There's Ophiuchus above the Zodiac. And that's why wisdom figures, the divine wisdom comes from, you've already got it. If you can get back in touch with self, the more we can get those parts to acknowledge self and then allow self to lead them again, they lost trust in self and buried it just like the brothers. The more we have access to actual divine inspiration, divine wisdom, here's Athena. Obviously she has a spear. She has a helmet, a little shield. She is definitely an Ophiuchus figure as you know, um, chance was giving some examples. She springs out of the head of Zeus. We've already seen that Zeus is the constellation Hercules and boom, out comes Athena full grown. She's D- David to, to add yeah. to what you're saying though, about those defensive aspects that come mm-hmm. in that cut us off from higher self. I think it's interesting now that we're looking at Athena again, that epithet palace, meaning mm-hmm. what wisdom, but also sharing roots with words in uh, all kinds of languages referring to gates. gates. So like polis, that's the, the city. Yeah. And what, why is it a polis? It's because what defines mm-hmm. it as a city is it's got a gate. It's got walls. It's guarded. And I think maybe what we're being shown here through language, because one of the things about language is such a vast uh, mystical subject to study that even without knowing it, we encode dual meanings within everything we say, where Mm -hmm. higher self is actually speaking to us through us. And we might not even realize it if we're only stuck in one like left brain uh, definition style of understanding. But if you can get in and dig through the, all the alternate possible meanings and the phonetics that you're saying, you might actually realize, Oh, I'm saying something way deeper and wiser. And I think maybe what's being said here is that fear makes you believe that, uh, violence, closed offness, you know, Mm. withdrawing, uh, splintering, schisming, that these things are protective measures, but wisdom itself is all the protection you need. Once you're truly in tune with higher self, the, it's a trust thing where you can know that no matter what happens, even no matter how gnarly it is, uh, there's a trustworthy person there, which is myself, which means you don't have to have all these sort of defensive reactionary qualities because you'll just know that you'll do the right thing in the moment, whatever is required. And so wisdom is like your defense. Wisdom is your, your pole, your spear, it's your, it's your weapon and it's your shield. You know, and all it's your that. open gate. I love it's really beautiful how you're pulling out the esoteric meaning of the gate. It's like you're open things 
divine wisdom can express without you even knowing it. As you're pointing out in these words, the, the place of Athena in Athens is called the Acropolis, right? If I'm not mistaken, the, the Parthenon yeah. dedicated to Athena is on the Acropolis, which has that same root that you're, that you keep bringing us back to. And it's a portal. It's an opening for divine wisdom. I, I mean, I can cite instances in my life where things have been happening before I even knew that I, I couldn't have been making them happen. It's like the divine, <laughs> um, it, these things can happen without if like you're saying, the openness is an important aspect of this divine connection to let it come through. Right. Um, it's Acro means high. So the Acropolis is like the high city, which mm. is, that's what Athena is. She's the one that's higher up above the, mm. the rest. On a high gate. She's a high gate. Look at, look at Ophiuchus. <laughs> and so wisdom figures um, are associated with Ophiuchus as is. Solomon, he's in between two pillars. Uh, this is by Raphael, actually, the, the famous judgment of Solomon. Oh, yeah. The two uh, pillars thing, by the way, pill, yeah. pillar, it's the mm. same phonetic as palace and pole. But uh, we maybe should make sure that that is understood why that symbolism or like the the two clefts of mm. like the cleft rock. of rock symbol, like how that fits into the Ophiuchus uh, asterism. Yeah, well, I don't have Ophiuchus on the picture with Solomon, but suffice it to say, there is no doubt in my mind that Solomon is Ophiuchus, and he's the son of David, who's associated with Hercules and has a harp right next by, <laughs> right next to him, the lyre of Lyra the lyre. Um, I will have a map of Ophiuchus. So hold the thought of Solomon's two pillars. Um, here is, we've gotten to Krishna. Um, I'll, I'll just move it along because we're almost done with the slides and then we can bat around some thoughts and get more of Mario's take too on some of this. Krishna is obviously standing. This is a very famous uh, story about Krishna defeating a different Nag or Naga called the Kaliya Nag. This is Krishna. He's standing on the Kaliya Nag, just as we saw Michael standing on the seven-headed or ten-horned dragon before. It's the same stars in heaven. The same constellations have generated a different story in ancient India is Krishna defeating the Kaliya Nag. It's usually pronounced without the A on the end. This one is not as high resolution, but and also the snake doesn't have multiple heads. Usually he does have five or seven heads in the depictions, but the reason I show this one is I like the flute uh, depiction. Krishna is almost always depicted with this flute off to one side. Can you see how he's Ophiuchus? First of all, he's standing on a multi-headed serpent. That's Scorpio. Can everyone the, see uh, it? And the Nagas is the same word as Nakash or Nahash, mm -hmm. the Hebrew word for serpent. C sound and G sound interchangeable. Yeah, I, I'll grant you that. I didn't ever think of that. See how the flute is off to one side on Krishna standing on the head of Scorpio? Yeah. And here's a, here's a more recent um, statue. This one's in, I think, Singapore, but that's very typical of the way Krishna holds the flute off to that side. You see how it is. I would even argue that the umbrella over his head is a Ophiuchus 
when you see those chariots, you mentioned how Abraxas is sometimes in a chariot. Krishna's chariot will almost always have an umbrella at the top of it. Ophiuchus itself can be a chariot. And I talk about that somewhere in some of my books. But um, there is no doubt that this is a worldwide system. It's not just in Western esoterica, although that, you know, maybe what we're most familiar with, or if you study Tarot, then you see these symbols in Tarot, but it is worldwide. It is, we saw it in the Americas with the gate of the sun at Tiwanaku, and I could show it to you in Maya paintings and artwork from Maya cups and vessels. And we saw that Olmec Stila from La Venta in modern day Guatemala. It's just really undeniable that these these figures, these divine self figures are associated with Ophiuchus. And I would argue it's because of that dynamic that Ophiuchus is the connection between the Zodiac and the divine realm along the Milky Way. And Jesus is, as we've mentioned, an Ophiuchus figure. Can, you, can anyone spot any scorpions in this picture? Just a couple. <laughs> this is from the 1400s, Giovanni Bacati. Um, Often, Jesus being crucified in between two thieves. Can you see how distorted the thieves look? This is not even the most distorted, but the crucified between two thieves is Ophiuchus again, and standing on a scorpion or above a scorpion. The, the artist here has put scorpions down below the feet of the crucified trio there. This one is the one I really like to show. Um, I don't know what that red line is doing off to the right, but... Obviously, I'm going to do some animation. That's what um, this is from an artist named Martin van Heemskerk, who's obviously Dutch. Also, uh, well, 1400s, 1500s. Look at how distorted and twisted the felons on either side are. They're really on some twisty crosses, whereas Jesus is on the standard um Ophiuchus cross. Well, I gave it away because that red line isn't supposed to come in quite yet, but can you see how that central shape of Ophiuchus can give rise to the standard cross? And then the two thieves on either side are on twisty crosses on the either side of the serpent halves of Ophiuchus. Yeah, I can totally see that. And so the 12 disciples, it's the same pattern as Joseph being sent down or betrayed by his 12 brothers and or the children of Israel. The and if Zodiac, it wasn't clear that this crucifixion scene fits astrotheology to Jesus dying on the cross and being dead for three days, right after this point in the sky clock of whereabouts, we get the uh, winter solstice. That's right. The the turning point. And also, I want to point out that we don't have obvious scorpions all over the place, but there is a figure. If you look straight down from the cross, there's the skull, the place of the skull. But you can see a guy kind of on his stomach. He's naked and he's actually in the shape of Scorpio. I, I've argued that guy is in a Scorpio position down there. Um, but artists do this all the time <laughs> throughout the centuries. What I'm what I'm saying is. I believe that this system is depicting this internal drama. You have a higher self figure that corresponds to the, the aspects of Jesus able to heal trauma, able to deal with any situation. You have a higher self that has been buried. That's what the myths are trying to show us. And they show it to us in this 
esoteric way because we've suppressed the idea so firmly that it's like, I always go back to my Mr. Miyagi metaphor. It's like Mr. Miyagi has to get around Daniel's doubts by using wax on wax off to almost do an end around because Daniel is so full of doubts and so doubtful of himself. He wouldn't even listen. If Mr. Miyagi said, this will stop a kick. Daniel Sam would be like, um, are you sure? Uh, uh, but instead Daniel Sam teaches him in an esoteric way to get around all those doubting defense mechanisms. We've suppressed our own higher self, all these different parts that, they're not bad. They have something to give us, but they need to get back in harmony. They're all, it's like the basketball, it's like a pro basketball team has locked their coach in the locker room and they're trying, and they're squabbling on the floor as to who should take the final shot or who needs to sit out for five minutes instead of trusting the coach. I hope that is fairly clear. I kind of zip through it a little bit in the interest of trying to get through all the slides, but that is what I believe is going on and why Ophiuchus is so important. Excellent, man. I love it. You know, as you're talking about a lot of this stuff, um, Chiron came to mind a number of times, the story of Chiron, mm. the wounded healer, you know, and I know that um, it's said, if I'm not mistaken, that Chiron, or at least one version of the myth is that he studied under uh, Asclepius, um, which obviously has a correlation with Ophiuchus and uh, Chiron also being attributed to being um, one of the inspirations for Sagittarius. Obviously, there's variations on the theme about, you know, who actually inspired, you know, what constellations and, and you know, there's different storylines with all of that. But uh, just the idea of the wounded healer transmuting, you know, these core wounds, invisible wounds, and then how a lot of shamans and healers and things like that, they generally have gone through some sort of major trial, you know, in their life that they've had to transmute. Um, so the fact that you're integrating trauma and everything else into your work, I can really appreciate that. And I think it makes a lot of sense and I'm on board with it. Um, I just gave a class in person called symbolism itself. And this is kind of what I built up to as well. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That look, at, look at all these myths have so much trauma in them. I mean, the Joseph story, it, the, the brothers hate Joseph for a variety of reasons, but one is the, father says, Oh, Joseph is my favorite. And Oh, I'm going to give Joseph a special coat. And the brothers are like, it's, it's, it's in the Adam and Eve story. It's in all, you know, all the Greek myths, there's so much horrific things going on. You say, what, what is the point of all this? It's actually showing what's going on when we go through these different experiences that we, that we have in this life. And I believe you can have a culture that is less traumatic and a culture that is more traumatic. And I believe we've probably, we're probably on the path to making more and more trauma the way that society has been going where children are not given the kinds of support and, and comfort as children that they should be getting because the parents are, not because the parents are bad because they're working three jobs or they're, you know, stressed out themselves or they're, they've, they're carrying all kinds of baggage from their upbringing. It's, the, it's well, the self is the, the aspect of being that is doing the noticing. <laughs> 
And then there's the self that is the part that notices that there's something that's noticing. So it's kind of like <laughs> it just kind of goes on in an infinite recursion. But you can, the very least, understand that a, a whole person who's experiencing themselves in a state of wholeness, they're also in a state of pure awareness. So the, the less filtered their awareness of reality is, the closer to truth they are. And the closer to truth you are, the closer to self you are, right? And one of the things that goes on in this culture is that awareness and attention is constantly being attacked. And that with our current type of technology and all the things on offer, what a traumatized person will do is try to escape from themselves, try to escape from the moment, try to escape from the truth, try to escape from reality. And so there's more and more time of the day that people spend a larger and larger percentage of their time where they're checked out, hypnotized, uh, trance like state, you know, not really fully present or their attention is on something that is unreal, that has no basis in reality or they're not correlating it to to what is real. They're in the Baudrillard sense, the hyper reality. And then the more the hyper reality becomes their their main, then the more egregiously uh, wrong real reality feels and the more they want to escape further into hyper reality experiences. So you're right about we're in a culture that we have all the tools more than ever. The tools and techniques are available to actually come to grips with trauma, which I think the ultimate as somebody that helps people through this in a, in my practice outside of being a podcast host what i've come to understand is that the way we heal trauma is not just knowing that it happened or how it made us feel or who done it or any of that but coming to a full understanding of how the trauma affected our behavior and gave us an idea of our personality that is actually something we have free will over. It's not just how we are or just how life is, just how the world is. The Somebody in one of my Telegram chats said an awesome thing that our magic is in our worldview. And I think that's a big part of healing trauma too and why this uh, work that you do is so helpful <laughs> and the myth and trauma book is so great and all the syncretism work is great because it shows that humanity is actually has deeper and more powerful roots than what you might have believed. And that's a worldview healing thing. It's a division healing thing to see like, oh, there's no need to try to say one religion is better than the other. They're actually all saying the same thing. They're all pointing to reality, which is the, the sky. That's the reality we all share. It's the collective unconscious because it's the thing that no matter where you are, everybody can see the whole sky, right? So that's uh, kind of my take on it. It's about getting to understand how it affected your behavior. And that's the gap between reacting and stimulus. It's a beautiful summary. And, and I think it's a, it's probably a great place to, to leave it. Um, and when you were talking at the beginning about kind of the traumatic attempt to escape or go into, you know, get some, cotton candy reality or hyper reality or, you know, comfort. The irony is self connects us to this, <laughs> connects us to nature, 
connects us to other people and connects us to the divine realm in ways that are, it's like all the things that you're looking for as substitutes, you can actually. The real thing tastes way better. You you have access to the real thing. And, and so it's like, this is the most exciting quest in each of our lives. And the most important is, is for us to recover and, and, that's what we're all searching for. Recover self and be, and and not get rid of all the other 12 either. They, you notice Jesus doesn't throw out Thomas when Thomas is doubting. He doesn't say, oh, Thomas, now I will poof, disintegrate you. No, he gets Thomas into a right relationship. All of our different. It's not like we only just now stay in self, but now all the different gifts that we have from those different Zodiac ingredients that we have can play a more positive role instead of the kind of like disruptive, angry, um, you know, delinquent role that they're playing in order to try and cover something over. And now we get the whole team anyway. I think that was a beautiful summary chance. And also Mario, I love some of the angles that we're bringing out that I haven't seen that you with your symbology and chance with the language and history and palace. And I think we've just hit on some beautiful angles on this mystery. Yeah, I agree. No, this conversation was a gift, man, with everything that I'm interested in right now. Um, this came at me at the right time, taking some uh, pretty big things away from it and, uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime. This is great. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Chance. Thank you, Mario. Yeah. So you guys are good and got no other closing thoughts or want to promote anything that you want people to know about? Uh, you know, I just pulled out a tarot card. I was going to share real quick. This is Mercurio. So this is the Montaigne deck. And you can see that Mercury mm. has his flute there, right? Because you just brought up uh, flute symbolism. And then you can see that, uh, you you know, he has kind wow. of a, a variation on the caduceus with yep. uh, twin dragons. And then down below, the you flute can see is on that. the correct side, like Krishna, too. Ah, yes. Good point. And then you can see that there's that rooster down below, right? Wow. Curio. Uh, That head he's standing on is interesting, too. It makes me think of how. um, Okay, so after the the multi head and the serpent element is very Scorpio, right? With Medusa. I'm not sure if you've correlated Medusa with Scorpio, David, but it's possibly there. I know there's a Medusa uh, and Perseus elsewhere, too, in the stellar tableaus of the sky. But the. Ophiuchus, right? The Greek well, last weave, I swear. The uh, <laughs> the the word in Greek for kus or kush was actually krusor, uh, which is basically the same word because the upsilon can be a y or a u. It's the same spelling and the same word as chrysor, which is the the being that jumps out of the head of or the severed Medusa. head of Medusa. And with Pegasus, <laughs> yeah, which is right. That there's something um, lacking with Chrysor in terms of mythology. That's not a lot said other than that moment of him being born. Mm. Unless you go with the one weak link that connects him to Belafron or identifies him as Belafron, in which case it's like a proto Hercules figure, and that's a whole nother story. 
but he's like potentially a savior archetype or a mercurial traveling character, messenger character. So Chrysor jumping out of Medusa's head is what I see when I see that head at the feet of Mercury for sure. Cause Chrysor is Kush. So interesting. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of examination of the Medusa myth in myth and trauma, as you can imagine from the illustration on the cover, but also it's such an important myth invoking the ancient gods in you. There's even more. So <laughs> check that out. Um, it Ask is, for it for Christmas. It, I'm going to. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, thanks for just, thanks for everyone who's listening. Thanks Chance and Mario for making this magic, magical time happen and making the magic happen. And, and I hope that the conversation has been a blessing to everybody out there listening, just like it has been to me. Yeah, buddy. Thank you. It's been a blessing on my end. I've been wanting to do this. And of course, it's just the tip of the iceberg with Ophiuchus, but I hope people will now see some of the keys to the symbolism that will allow them to identify it when it comes up, when they come across it in whatever mythology or religion they might be checking out. And uh, check out Mario at SymbolicStudies.com. He's on TikTok. He's on YouTube. He's on Instagram probably more you can do a lot with him including one-on-one tarot reading sessions uh, and david is at starmythworld.com and all his books are there and he's got a youtube channel and other than that we'll we'll have to do it again guys we'll just pick another subject and deep dive it someday it's going to be a lot of fun thanks awesome. again awesome. absolutely awesome. all right guys take care